Chapter 8, Part 2 of Aeroplanes and Dirigibles of War by Frederick A. Talbot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by William Tomko. Aeroplanes and Dirigibles of War by Frederick A. Talbot. Chapter 8, Part 2. The roving Teuton scout was considerably in evidence in the early days of the war, but two or three weeks' experience emphasized the sad fact that, in aerial strategy, he was hopelessly outmatched by his opponents. His advantage of speed was nullified by the superior tactical and strategical acumen of his antagonists, the result being that the German airman, who has merely been trained along certain lines, who is in many cases nothing more than a cogwheel in a machine, and who is proverbially slow-witted, has concluded that he is no match for the airmen of the Allies. He found from bitter experience that nothing afforded the Anglo-French military aviators such keen delight as to lie in wait for a rover, and then to swoop into the air to round him up. The proportion of these individual scouts, who were either brought down or only just succeeded in reaching safety within their own lines, and who were able to exhibit serious wounds as evidence of the severity of the aerial tussle, or the narrowness of the escape, has unnerved the Teuton airmen as a body to a very considerable extent. Often, even when an aeroplane descended within the German lines, it was found that the roving airman had paid the penalty for his rashness with his life, so that his journey had proved in vain, because all the intelligence he had gained had died with him, or, if committed to paper, was so unintelligible as to prove useless. It was the success of the British airmen in this particular field of duty which was responsible for the momentous declaration in Field Marshal Sir John French's famous dispatch, the british flying corps has succeeded in establishing an individual ascendancy which is as serviceable to us as it is damaging to the enemy the enemy have been less enterprising in their flights something in the direction of the mastery of the air has already been gained the methods of the british airmen are in vivid contrast to the practice of the venturesome teuton aerial rovers described above while individual flights are undertaken, they are not of unknown duration or mileage. The man is given a definite duty to perform, and he ascends merely to fulfill it, returning with the information at the earliest possible moment. It is aerial scouting with a method. The intelligence is required and obtained for a specific purpose to govern a contemplated move in the grim game of war. Even then, the flight is often undertaken by two or more airmen for the purpose of checking and counter-checking information gained or to ensure such data being brought back to headquarters, since it is quite possible that one of the party may fall a victim to hostile fire. By operating upon these lines, there is very little likelihood of the mission proving a complete failure. Even when raids upon certain places such as Dusseldorf, Friedrichshaven, or Cuxhaven are planned, complete dependence is not placed on one individual. The machine is accompanied so that the possibility of the appointed task being consummated is transformed almost into a certainty. The French flying men work upon broadly similar lines. Their fleet is divided into small squadrons, each numbering four, six, or more machines, according to the nature of the contemplated task. Each airman is given an area of territory which is to be reconnoitred thoroughly. In this way, 
Perhaps one hundred or more miles of the enemy's front are searched for information at one and the same time. The units of the squadron start out, each taking the appointed direction according to the preconceived plan, and each steering by the aid of compass and map. They are urged to complete the work with all speed and to return to a secret rendezvous. Later, the air is alive with the whirring of motors. The machines are coming back and all converging to one point. They volplane to the earth and gracefully settle down within a short distance of each other at the rendezvous. The pilots collect and each relates the intelligence he has gained. The data are collated and in this manner the general staff is able to learn exactly what is transpiring over a long stretch of the hostile lines and a considerable distance to the rear of his advance works. Possibly 500 square miles have been reconnoitered in this manner. Troops have been massed here. Lines of communication extend somewhere else, while convoys are moving at a third place. But all has been observed, and the commanding officer is in a position to rearrange his forces accordingly. It is a remarkable example of method in military tactics and strategy, and conveys a striking idea of the degree to which aerial operations have been organized. After due deliberation, it is decided that the convoy shall be raided, or that massed troops shall be thrown into confusion, if not dispersed. The squadron is ordered to prepare for another aerial journey. The roads along which the convoys are moving are indicated upon the map, or the position of the massed troops in bivouac is similarly shown. The airmen load their machines with a full charge of bombs. When all is ready, the leader ascends, followed in rapid succession by the other units, and they whir through the air in single file. It now becomes a grim game of follow my leader. The leader detects the convoy, swoops down, suddenly launches his missiles, and reascends. He does not deviate a foot from his path to observe the effects of his discharge, as the succeeding aeroplane is close behind him. If the leader has missed, then the next airman may correct his error. One after another, the machines repeat the maneuver, in precisely the same manner as the units of a battleship squadron emulate the leading vessel when attacking the foe. The tactical evolutions have been laid down, and there is rigid adherence thereto, because only thereby may success be achieved. When the last warplane has completed its work, the leader swings round and repeats the dash upon the foe. A hail of bullets may scream around the men in the air, but one and all follow faithfully in the leader's trail. One or more machines may fail in the attack, and may even meet with disaster, but nothing interferes with the movements of the squadron as a whole. It is the homogeneity of the attacking fleet which tells, and which undermines the morale of the enemy, even if it does not wreak decisive material devastation. The work accomplished to the best of their ability, the airmen speed back to their lines in the same formation. At first sight, reconnoitering from aloft may appear a simple operation, but a little reflection will reveal the difficulties and arduousness of the work. The observer, whether he be specially deputed or whether the work be placed in the hand of the pilot himself, in this event the operation is rendered additionally trying as he also has to attend to his machine, must keep his eyes glued to the ground beneath and at the same time be able to read the configuration of the panorama revealed to him. He must also keep in touch with his map and compass, so as to be positive of his position and direction. He must be a first-class judge of distances and heights. 
when flying rapidly at a height of four thousand feet or more the country below appears as a perfect plain or flat stretch although as a matter of fact it may be extremely undulating consequently it is by no means a simple matter to distinguish eminences and depressions or to determine the respective and relative heights of hills if a rough sketch is required the observer must be rapid in thought quick in determination and facile with his pencil as the machine no matter how it may be slowed down is moving at a relatively high speed he must consult his map and compass frequently since an airman who loses his bearings is useless to his commander-in-chief he must have an eagle eye so as to be able to search the country unfolded below in order to gather all the information which is likely to be of value to his superior officers he must be able to judge accurately the number of troops arrayed beneath him the lines of the defensive works to distinguish the defended from the dummy lines which are thrown up to baffle him and to detect instantly the movement of the troops and the direction as well as the roads along which they are proceeding reserves and their complement artillery railway lines roads and bridges if any over streams and railways must be noted in short he must obtain an eye photograph of the country he observes and grasp exactly what is happening there in winter with the thermometer well down a blood-freezing wind blowing wreaths of clouds drifting below and obscuring vision for minutes at a time the rain possibly pelting down as if presaging a second deluge the plight of the vigilant human eye aloft is far from enviable upon the return of the machine to its base the report must be prepared without delay the picture recorded by the eye has to be set down clearly and intelligibly with the utmost speed the requisite indications must be made accurately upon the map nothing of importance must be omitted the most trivial detail is often of vital importance a facile pencil is of inestimable value in such operations while aloft the observer does not trust to his memory or his eye picture but commits the essential factors to paper in the form of a code or what may perhaps be described more accurately as a shorthand pictorial interpretation of the things he has witnessed to the man in the street such a record would be unintelligible but it is pregnant with meaning and when worked out for the guidance of the superior officers is a mass of invaluable detail at times it so happens that the airman has not been able to complete his duty within the time anticipated by those below but he has gathered certain information which he wishes to communicate without coming to earth such data may be dropped from the clouds in the form of maps or messages although wireless telegraphy is available for this purpose it suffers from certain drawbacks if the enemy possesses an equipment which is within range of that of the aircraft and the force to which it belongs communications may be nullified by the enemy throwing out a continuous stream of useless signals which jam the intelligence of their opponents if a message written in code or a map is to be dropped from aloft it is enclosed within a special metallic cylinder fitted with a vane tail to ensure direction of flight when launched and with a detonating head this is dropped overboard. When it strikes the ground, the detonator fires a charge which emits a report without damaging the message container, and at the same time fires a combustible charge emitting considerable smoke. The noise attracts anyone in the vicinity of the spot where the message has fallen, while at the same time the clouds of smoke guide one to the point and enable the cylinder to be recovered. 
This device is extensively used by the German aviators and has proved highly serviceable. A similar contrivance is adopted by French airmen. There is one phase of aerial activity which remains to be demonstrated. This is the utilization of aerial craft by the defenders of a besieged position such as a ring of fortifications or fortified city. The utility of the fourth arm in this province has been the subject of considerable speculation. Expert opinion maintains that the advantage in this particular connection would rest with the besiegers. The latter would be able to ascertain the character of the defenses and the defending gun force by means of the aerial scout who would prove of inestimable value in directing the fire of the besieging forces. On the other hand, it is maintained that an aerial fleet would be useless to the beleaguered. In the first place, the latter would experience grave difficulties in ascertaining the positions of the attacking and fortress-reducing artillery, inasmuch as this could be masked effectively. And it is thought that the aerial force of the besieged would be speedily reduced to impotence, since it would be subjected to an effective concentrated fire from the ring of besieging anti-aircraft guns and other weapons. In other words, the theory prevails that an aerial fleet, no matter how efficient, would be rendered ineffective for the simple reason that it would be the initial object of the besiegers' attack. Possibly the stem test of experience will reveal the fallacy of these contentions as emphatically as it has disproved others. But there is one point upon which authorities are unanimous. If the artillery of the investing forces is exposed and readily distinguishable, the aerial forces of the beleaguered will bring about its speedy annihilation, as the defensive artillery will be concentrated upon that of the besiegers. End of chapter 8, part 2. Recording by William Tomko.